Policy Research Associates is committed to the well-being and wellness of individuals with behavioral health conditions. To help spread information about the importance of the eight dimensions of wellness and recovery, we created a podcast series to address each pillar of wellness. In this podcast, you'll hear about environmental wellness from Dr. Crystal Lee Brando, Senior Project Associate at PRA, and Dr. Margaret Swarbrick, an expert at Collaborative Support Programs of New Jersey and Rutgers University Behavioral Health Care. Dr. Swarbrick has been a leader, author, and advocate within the mental health system and consumer survivor movement. She has published and lectured nationally and internationally on wellness, peer-operated services, employment, and recovery. In this discussion, Dr. Brando and Dr. Swarbrick identify personal health habits and routines that can support environmental wellness and improve physical health. To learn more about PRA's work on well-being and wellness, contact us at wellbeing at prainc.com. Hi, and this is Crystal. Thank you for joining us today. On today's podcast, I'm talking with Peggy Swarbrick, a leading wellness champion about environmental wellness. We're very lucky to have her here with us today. Of all of the dimensions of wellness, I think environmental is one of the most interesting and perhaps even least understood dimension. So we hope today's podcast will help you understand not only what environmental wellness is, but also the ways in which you can improve your own environmental wellness. Environmental wellness involves good health by occupying pleasant and stimulating environments that support well-being. Each day, where you eat, live, sleep, learn, work out, meditate, work, transport yourself from place to place, and so on, where all of those things happen actually contributes to your own environmental wellness. Do you appreciate nature and the many nice things and people that surround you? Do you seek out music and other experiences that have a calming effect when under stress or just trying to get through the day? Those are the types of things environmental wellness is about. Environmental wellness isn't necessarily about going green or recycling, though both of those are important. It's important to consider how we can shape our daily environments to improve our overall well-being. To further make sense of environmental wellness, we're going to talk about the science of epigenetics today. If you've never heard of epigenetics, don't worry, you're not alone. This isn't a common term, but we promise it'll make sense after we talk about it today. So please don't turn off this podcast and don't worry about picking up a dictionary. We'll define epigenetics and discuss some very practical tips and tools you can easily do to improve your environmental wellness with the science of epigenetics in mind. Thanks for having me here today. I'm excited to talk about epigenetics and environmental wellness. Environmental wellness involves being and feeling physically safe in safe and clean surroundings and being able to access clean air, food, and water. It includes both the microenvironment, the places where we live, learn, work, and so on, and the macroenvironment, larger communities where we participate as citizens, our communities, country, and whole planet. As we know, health can be fostered by occupying pleasant, stimulating places and spaces and avoiding toxic environments. So today, we're going to look at environmental wellness, like you said, an, an important area that gets overlooked, and how it's impacted by epigenetics, and really, really important, the role of habits and routines. So by now, our listeners might be wondering, what is epigenetics? Epigenetics is essentially about environmental inputs that cause genetic responses, or the study of environmental factors that turn our genes on or off like a light switch. Epigenetics helps us to discover how genes express themselves and how they impact our behavior. In other words, we're all made up of genes. 
A gene is the basic physical and functional unit of heredity. Genes, which are made up of DNA, instruct molecules called proteins. In humans, genes vary in size from a few hundred DNA bases to more than two million. The Human Genome Project has estimated that humans have between 20,000 and 25,000 genes. And these genes are what determine some of our physical features, like our eye color or our hair color, for example. We can have genes in our bodies that are not turned on. Think about this as a light switch that no one has flicked up, so the lights remain off. Someone can have a gene for red hair, but if that gene was not turned on, so to speak, that person can end up having blonde hair. Yeah, for many years, we believed that our health was determined by whether we inherit good genes or bad genes from our parents. Epigenetics reveals the impact the environment has on our DNA or genes, as research has shown that the environment can turn genes off or on. Research in the area of epigenetics shows that although we inherit a specific gene identity, how those genes are expressed in terms of our wellness or illness is largely determined by what we eat and how we live our life. That's exactly right, Peggy. Our genes are not complete determinants of our health and wellness. Going back to the example of a light switch, switching the light switch on or off does not alter the light switch itself. The light switch is still a switch, but a minor modification can make your room look different. You could sit in the darkness or sit in the light. Similarly, with the epigenetic effect, a modification to genetic material can make parts of your appearance look different, depending on whether that gene was switched on or off. The gene would still exist, just like this light switch, as an example, but it can be expressed or active or not. Right. One of the best ways we can explain epigenetics to our listeners is to talk about the impact of epigenetics on habits and in our environmental wellness. So like Crystal, like you said, genes can be turned on and off. And this activation of the gene is influenced by both our experiences and our environment. If we think about trauma, which we know a lot about much more, and particularly the adverse childhood experience or ACEs study, children who experience abuse when they're young may experience epigenetic change that influence their ability to deal with immediate and longer-term stress that they encounter. may have a harder time coping with stress when compared to their peers who did not experience this traumatic abusive experience. In fact, one study found there's an association between adverse environmental stimuli, such as that early life stress, and the epigenetic modification of gene expression. Precisely. So in this case, traumatic experience literally changes a child's genetic makeup or profile. Take for another example twins who both have a gene for cancer. Let's say the twins inherited the cancer gene from their mother. One of the twins leads a healthy lifestyle and never develops cancer. On the other hand, the other twin smokes, eats an unhealthy diet, and gets exposed to other toxins, and ultimately this twin gets cancer. Both twins have the gene, but only one gets cancer because different behaviors turn that gene on. Similarly, having genes that might increase likelihood for behavioral health challenges like alcohol dependency or depression does not mean we will undoubtedly experience these things during our lifetimes. Research has consistently told us that obesity, heart disease, and various cancers are linked to epigenetics. I have really seen this firsthand. 
Heart disease is clearly in my family genes, as many of my mother's family experienced diabetes and heart-related problems at a very early age. My mother's father died very early, and her two brothers and my mother both had heart conditions and diabetes, which they were diagnosed at in their 40s. One of her brothers was diagnosed with colon cancer over 30 years ago. He received treatment, plus engaged in lifestyle changes. All of them are living now into their 80s. They have done so because they've established good health habits, routines, and paid attention to environmental wellness. They are doing things like physical activity and managing stress, and they did this early on after they were impacted. My siblings and I, early in our lives, made a conscious decision to think about and do more physical activity, pay attention to our sleep habits, and being very mindful about what we eat as a priority in our daily habits and routines. We each now range from 49 to 63 years, and so far, none of us have been diagnosed with diabetes, heart disease, or any cancer. Peggy, this is a great example for our listeners, explaining how our genes and our DNA alone do not account 100% towards illness. You illustrated that our wellness decisions, lifestyles, and habits matter more than what's written in our genes. All of this means that we can make efforts to change our environments, improving our environmental wellness in order to promote healthy behaviors. We can learn new things and do new things that can positively alter our health and wellness. Take, for example, a woman who has a gene for diabetes. This woman can set up a new routine of walking for 20 minutes, five days a week, or go to the gym twice a week. If she's never exercised before, she can start because she is capable of learning this new habit. This is actually another idea. The ability to learn new habits relates to the concept of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the idea that our brain structure can change even as we age, so our brains can create new habits even later in life. So in this example, for this hypothetical woman, things like putting her sneakers in her car or setting aside time on a Sunday to record the times that she'll take a walk or go to the gym in her planner can help cue her memory, helping her to make exercise a habit. Once she starts the exercise schedule, her body will respond. She's moving her body, circulating chemicals in her body. In fact, exercise induces the expression of a number of genes. Among the genes that turn on and off from intentional and consistent physical activities are ones that reduce her risk of actually getting diabetes. Of course, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to leave out the details and the names of the actual genes and chemicals, but we hope that this highlights the overall point for you. Epigenetics shows us that although we inherit a specific genetic identity, how those genes are expressed in terms of our illness and or wellness are largely determined by things like what we eat, how we live our life, and how we construct our daily habits and routines. How we live our lives is something we have control over each day when we wake up in the morning. I know firsthand that being aware of habits and routines in the environments where we live and work each day can make a big difference that can really have a positive effect on our overall health and wellness. Awareness, self-reflection, and an environmental scan are three things we can all do. I really encourage our listeners to build their awareness through this self-reflection. Self-reflection is that a process of just examining our thoughts and our actions. We can do this by setting aside and taking an inventory. Just think about two to three habits that we do each day. 
we can think about those two to three habits and think about where they occur, actually what we're doing, when that is, and then how we feel. Because this then will help us think about the environmental cues that can help us sustain those really good habits and or reestablish new ones that are going to really contribute to our overall wellness. And it is so important to reflect on daily habits, routines, and environmental supports. This can lead us to eating better, moving more, and managing our stress better. For example, our food choices clearly affect our health and wellness. We can set aside time at home or while drinking our morning beverage to plan the steps to create better eating habits. For example, we can start by selecting a day of the week, perhaps Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, where we can plan a weekly menu for our breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack foods for that week. This process can include looking online or at a food store circular from the newspaper to see what healthy items are available or on sale that week. We can make our shopping lists based on those healthy items available in our communities and those that are accessible for our budgets. When it's time to visit the store and buy items on our list, it would be great to walk or ride a bike to the store, increasing opportunities for physical activity in our day. If we drive, we can park our car further away from the entrance. Once we're in the store, we can look at our shopping list and proceed directly to those aisles and select the items from our list. We can tell ourselves to avoid certain items that we feel are not good for us. In fact, that's another list that we can make in advance so we know what to avoid and remember that once we're in the store. For example, if I know dairy products make me feel bad or if I feel they're unhealthy, I can include a reminder on my shopping list that I should not buy cheese or sour cream from the store. And there's even more strategies for wellness that don't involve the food and exercise. Let's take stress, for example. Although stress can help people achieve goals, too much stress influences release of harmful chemicals that can have a negative effect on our health and wellness. By now, many of us may have heard of the hormone cortisol, the stress hormone. Increases in this hormone interfere with learning and memory. It lowers immune function and bone density, and it can lead to increased weight, influence our blood pressure, cholesterol, and influences the occurrence of heart disease. We can counteract the negative impact of stress, reducing these issues like elevated cortisol levels by reflecting on our 24-hour schedule. Look at the schedule. We can identify a place in our home or in our work area where we can sit quietly for at least five minutes and do nothing except breathe. The place we select should be somewhere we find relaxing and relatively quiet or secluded. Environmental wellness plays a very big role here. The place we choose to sit quietly should feel good. Perhaps we have the colors we like, the textures and feelings that make us comfortable, or even the scents that we enjoy. Sitting quietly for even just those five minutes of time in peace can help reduce our stress levels. This is why practices like meditation are so beneficial. They improve our emotional wellness by decreasing stress and manifestations of anxiety, among other benefits. Not only can sitting still help us and alleviate stress, getting our bodies moving can help improve our stress responses too. According to the Mayo Clinic and many other sources, exercise in almost any form can act as a stress reliever. Being active can boost your feel-good endorphins and distract you from daily worries. 
So we can also change the chemical responses in our bodies by doing more physical activity. Precisely. Actively moving our body for a few minutes throughout the day can definitely affect our health and wellness. It's good to aim for 30 minutes of physical activity each day, though we all have very busy schedules. What we could do is think about is setting aside time to look at our calendars and think about just for a 10-minute slot in that 24-hour time period. That's just a little bit of time, 10 minutes. When we do this, we can see where we can schedule 10 to 15 minutes to walk, say, two to three times a day. That's where you can get that 30 minutes. Perhaps you set aside 10, 12 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the midday, and 10 minutes early evening. The 30 minutes of physical activity doesn't have to happen all at once to have this positive impact in our body. This may seem very simple, but many of us know this can be really difficult to do, but it's really important. It is very important, and a good strategy for making sure this happens is making sure that the physical activity you choose to do is something that you enjoy. If you don't like running, don't look for a time during the day that you can take a run. Instead, find time where you can listen to your favorite music and dance, do bodyweight exercises, jump rope, practice yoga, or whatever motivates you and makes you feel good. Some ways people have been able to establish physical activity as a habit is by writing down their plan in their calendar, the time and what they're going to do, whether on a paper or in a computer or smartphone calendar. This can help prompt when you stand up and walk or move around for at least 10 minutes. Like Crystal said, everyone has a favorite activity, whether it's walking, cycling, aerobics, jumping jacks, yoga, whatever is best for you, that's something to think about. Think about something that would fit into your schedule and fit into your lifestyle. The same way making a grocery list can help and having your shopping list written on paper, jotting down these activities, a date, a time to do them, is really going to help you be successful in forming this new habit. And I think it's important to point out to our listeners that physical activity doesn't have to be expensive. Precisely. A low-cost physical activity that I truly enjoy is walking. Walking is simple and natural. It does not have to require any instruction or skill. You just need supportive street shoes or sneakers. One idea you can think about doing is when you walk to your mailbox, you can set aside time to just walk a little bit further. Plan to walk to work and to the store if possible, like we mentioned. If it's not too far, try walking to the train instead of driving there and get off the bus or subway a few stops before your destination. Instead of competing for the closest parking space or paying extra for a nearby parking lot, park farther away and walk to your destination. You can walk alone or with someone else for support or companionship. Remember, the goal of this physical activity is to literally transform your body and promote wellness instead of illness from inside out. The suggestions for healthy eating and physical activity that we're sharing are all about changing chemicals and hormones in your body, changing gene expression, and encouraging your body to flourish. That's really great, Peggy. Thank you. We really hope we provided all of our listeners with some information on the science of epigenetics today and connected this term to your day-to-day life. Essentially, we hope to emphasize that health and wellness are largely determined by how we live, what we put into our bodies, what we eat, how we de-stress, 
whether or not we move our bodies. These lifestyle and environmental factors have a huge impact on our well-being, regardless of what our genes or DNA might suggest. Eating a healthy diet, practicing relaxation strategies, exercising regularly, and avoiding or limiting potentially harmful substances like tobacco and alcohol can transform our bodies from the inside out. For those who are living in recovery, these environmental changes are even more salient for reducing risks of disease and even premature death. The harsh realities are that people living with serious mental illness are dying earlier than their peers. Behavioral health challenges are not synonymous with loss of life, though. Practicing healthy lifestyle habits and improving environmental wellness can help promote wellness, increase years of life, and enhance overall well-being. We provided just a few environmental wellness tips and tools here today. We hope this information was valuable and that you feel free to contact us if you'd like to learn more. Thank you to our listeners for exploring environmental wellness with us today. And a special thanks to Peggy Swarbrick for joining us on today's podcast. Thanks, Crystal, for having me here today. Today. Today.